0: Welcome to Simplify. I'm Benjamin Stoller.
1: And I'm Caitlin Schiller. Simplify is for anybody who's taken a close look at their habits, their happiness, their relationships, or their health and thought, there's got to be a better way to do this.
0: In today's episode, Caitlin talks to Rebecca Traister, writer, journalist, and genius connector of ideas. Traister is currently a writer-at-large for New York Magazine and contributing editor at Elle, but we wanted her on Simplify because of her recent book, All the Single Ladies.
1: Oh yeah, I love this book. Why? Well, like you said, Tracer connects ideas. This is journalism, history, culture studies, feminism, and memoir all in one. And it actually all works. It's not too academic or, on the other side, wishy-washy.
0: Totally. And you guys talked about a lot of these things. Breaking down the whole idea of single women and why that's such an important topic. I don't know I don't know if you heard about this, actually, but our production assistant, Nat, told me this interview totally changed what she thinks of single life and the meaning of her relationship status.
1: Wow. No, I didn't hear that. And those are big promises to start off this episode, Ben.
0: Yeah, but I mean it. I mean, this interview might just change the way lots of people think about their relationship status. And I mean, big picture wise, what that means for their life and for society as a whole.
1: Yeah, this is one of those talks that um, that was really meaningful to me and I think is a really cool, interesting thing to look at. So, let's get into it. Listen to the interview, and then don't forget to stick around after because we'll make a book list for anybody who wants to go deeper into these topics.
0: All right then, let's roll the tape. Here's Caitlin Schiller and Rebecca Traster. Catch you guys on the bookend.
1: Would you please go ahead and introduce yourself?
2: Sure. My name is Rebecca Traister, and I'm a journalist who covers women in politics and media and entertainment from a feminist perspective. Um, I am a writer-at-large at New York Magazine, and I am the author of two books, um, the last one of which was All the Single Ladies, which was published in 2016.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Okay, so All the Single Ladies is about single women, a group that over the last century has grown in social and political power in the West. And All the Single Ladies treats how single women have great jobs, cultural capital, and money to spend on themselves and their friends and their own priorities. Basically, they have a great deal of resources and agency to focus on whatever they
2: want. So Some do. I mean, one of the things that the book is about is that the economic realities of unmarried life very greatly, depending on where you're starting socioeconomically. But that's certainly true about amongst the most economically privileged in the United States, and I think this is also true around the world, singlehood offers sort of so far historically unparalleled freedoms and kinds of liberation that, that are especially that are available to those who have economic resources.
1: I was actually definitely. I was going to get to that. I kind of beat around the bush a little bit, though. Why did you decide to focus on this particular topic when you when you set out to write the book?
2: Well, without realizing it, I'd been writing about unmarried life for women as a journalist over the years, simply by doing a certain amount of first person writing. And so I had written, for example, back in 2004 about my best friend, you know, and sort of my partner in New York City who had left New York City and moved to Boston to live with a boyfriend and what that was like. And I'd written at that point an an essay called Girlfriends Are the New Husbands. Mm. Um, And this had all come out of the fact that my life in my 20s and my early 30s was really as a single person. While many of my friends and peers were in and out of relationships, I happened not to be. I'd had a I had an off again, on again relationship in my early twenties and that was it. I was then single through my twenties and into my thirties. And I wasn't great at having casual sex, though I I wish that I were better at it because I, I would have enjoyed it, but I just didn't I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't something that was um, that I pursued and, and I and I went on a lot of dates. I went on dates anytime I was asked or whenever I was set up, but I didn't really like anybody enough to go on more than two dates. <laughs> I was really, really single. It wasn't like, oh, then I had this boyfriend Then I was really single. So my first person writing, even though it wasn't sort of obsessing about the fact that I was single, if I was writing about my friendships, if I was writing about um, my living situation or or my dating life, it, I had been writing about single life. Then in my, or in my early 30s, when I was 33, I fell in love, um, really for the first time in my life. And when I was 35, we decided to get married. I had just published my first book, which had been about the 2008 election, um, about the politics of gender, race, and class in 2008. I had a full career. I had a life and a network and friends in the city. And then I got married and people started treating me like my adult life was beginning. And I was really shocked by it. <laughs> I mean, I was so happy to have fallen in love with the man I fell in love with. And I was happy to be getting married. But people were suddenly like, there was all this stuff being thrown, you know, don't you want to have a wedding shower? And I was like, no, don't you want to register for like dishes and stuff? It was like, no, we're I was 35. My husband's 40 was 45 at the time. And it was like, we have like double sets of dishes. We need fewer dishes. We need to register for someone to come and take away our dishes. <laughs> I began to think about this. And I was thinking about my own sort of, I lived my whole life to that point And I was not, I mean, 35, I was in the middle of my adulthood. Mm-hmm. Then the kind of stuff that came at me when I did get partnered sort of confirmed all that for me. And I was like, this is a total misreading of what adult life is for women. I did not feel and I still do not feel that my adult life started when I fell in love with my husband. Far from it. I feel like, in fact, my relationship with my husband was in part um, made possible by the fact that I had a full adult life.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I, I thought there's a real profound misunderstanding because it wasn't just me. It's how my friends and my peers and my co-workers were living. I knew as a reporter that that's how women in different cities and around the country and in, certainly in different economic positions we're living. And so I thought, there's a book here. That's the most long winded answer to a short question.
1: <laughs> I I identify with so much of this. And I was thinking how different life would be if we did start off our early 20s with this sort of ceremony where you get money and dishes and you register for things that you might need.
2: Um, when I was in my in my 20s and living in New York, Sex in the City was at its kind of peak and it was celebrated as this liberating show. Ugh. Right. And you know, in the in the book I write about sort of disagreements I had with the television critic Emily Newsbaum about it. Emily Newsbaum like thinks it's an incredibly important show and she loves it. And she wrote a brilliant essay about, you know, kind of trying to redeem it from the from the bad rap it's gotten retrospectively. Um, but at the time I did really resent it. I did not have money and I was not having sex and I did not have fancy clothes and I didn't give a shit about fancy clothes by the way, but I really like, you know, they had nothing to do with how I was living my life in my twenties. But a lot of that stuff was symbolic, right? The the shoes and the closets and the clothes and the drinks and all that, that was trying to do the symbolic work of talking about new kinds of space that women had in their lives. And the story that it wound up telling was a story of commodification. So I, when we have conversations and we talk about, oh, wouldn't it be great if there were like a party for people just at the beginning of adulthood, which is essentially, by the way, what what weddings used to be, right? The the attachment to giving people stuff, right? To giving them money, to helping them like furnish a home through a registry and gifts and all that st- sort of stuff. It actually, if if as was the case for generations, adult life began with the union of two people, then it makes sense if, if that, you know, in the United States, the median age for first marriage for women from 1890 to 1980, which is as far back as they measured it, median age of, for first marriage for women... It only slid back and forth between 20 and 22 until 1980. Um, Now, today it is over 27 nationally, and it's higher than 30 in some cities. So that's like a massive shift after centuries, really, of it never really getting above 22. So all the rituals around wedding stuff make sense if, in fact, that is your entrance into adult life and you need to move beyond the home in which you were raised into a home where you have some infrastructure, right? But if the wedding is no longer the thing that's happening to you when you're 18 or 19 or 22 or whenever you're sort of moving into the world on your own, then it does make sense to take that practice and apply it at the beginning of life, at the beginning of adulthood. And that is something that Sex in the City, like they had an episode about and God, it just exemplifies everything that's right and wrong with the show. That address just this. It was, you know, you give all this money to everybody else and all these gifts and you pay for all the bachelorette parties or whatever for all your friends who are getting married. And you're single. You're not gaining another income. And yet all your money is going toward those who are who are partnering with other, other incomes. And so it's a really, that makes a powerful economic point. But the way they do it on Sex in the City is she wants to have like a registry for Manolo Blahniks or something. Like she wants to <laughs> register for shoes. It's, it really is actually an incredibly powerful point. The people living independently in the world need the resources that we traditionally tie up with weddings and with marital unions. And... We should remake our practices around that to support the people who have the greater need and who move into adulthood on their own. But then the way Sex and the City does it is as, as like extremely expensive heels,
1: which caricatures like, of what single women are. <laughs> exactly. What would that even look like if we were to begin to remake what the start of a ceremonial ceremonious adult life were to look like? Would it just be I, I like I'm not even sure.
2: No, it would look it would look it would be pretty normal for those of us who have lived it but we need government policy and that is, we need to raise wages in this country, which is also, that's really tied to, to our ideas about marriage, even though it seems like it's a separate issue because one of the functions that marriage has had in the United States is to be an economic organizing system. It's a, it's an institution that is meant to organize the kinds of labor and economic power that people have. So marriage combines a kind of American who we imagine earns wages And the kind of American who we imagine raises a family and keeps a house and makes the the wage earners public life possible by taking care of the domestic world. And the idea there is that the domestic laborer is economically dependent on the wage earner and the wage earner is in some way domestically dependent on the domestic laborer. And that's how it's been, right? And so, the, everything from the way that school our school days operate, so that you assume that somebody's there to pick up children at three o'clock in the afternoon. Who do we assume is there? We ever we can't we can't even begin to count the number of basic daily realities in our lives that are built around the idea that we're organized into hetero married pairs, right? Absolutely. If we began to reorganize ourselves to consider that every individual deserves economic stability and a safety net and might make choices that are different from another individual's choices, then we would begin to provide everything from, you know, maybe a universal basic income to, uh, higher wages, to paid sick day and paid family leave and paid childcare. And of course, you'd have to have full reproductive rights and reproductive justice policies that permitted women across the economic spectrum to exert full control over their reproductive lives. And it's, it's that all that stuff tied together that would acknowledge really the way that women and men live now, which is simply not the way they lived 30 years ago. And we don't have... Um, economic policy and thus we don't have social practice that reflects the way that people live back at them but it would be very humane i mean imagine it you could move into the world afford to go to college if you wanted to you know have have some assurance that you could make a fair wage that you could make decisions about whether or under what circumstances to have a family or to not have a family um, and then the choice of whether or not you partner becomes entirely that's something it's not minor it enables you to make other kinds of choices where the decisions you do about like do i marry this person don't come down to things like you know does he have insurance or oh my god <laughs> yeah.
1: i wonder i wonder how much that would make the marriage rate drop because if women are all of a sudden making choices based upon affinity and and romantic attraction and not out of necessity, I, I would just love to see what that would do to the world.
0: Hey, guys, it's Ben. We're taking a quick break from Caitlin and Rebecca Tracer to hear from one of you.
2: Hi, Caitlin and Ben. First,
1: I just wanted to say I'm loving the topics and authors on season two. keep up the good work. And inspired by the holiday season, the thing that I found easier than you might initially think is gift giving. The trick for me draws from the season one Dan Allen episode, which is writing ideas down throughout the year. I personally keep a list of important people in my life and the things that they mention wanting or liking. Then when an occasion rolls around, it's super easy to buy a thoughtful gift without having to rack your brain. Thanks and happy
0: holidays. Thanks, Paige. And by the way, she references the David Allen interview uh, from season one, which was episode three in season one. You can find that on our ho- on our landing page, Blinkist.com slash simplify. Or you can find it on the magazine at Blinkist.com slash magazine. And you can find the transcript there and even a video of what happened when we went over to Amsterdam to talk to David Allen. And you can actually see Caitlin talking to him. So check that out if you haven't yet. And we'd love to hear from more of you out there. Let us know what you've learned. I'm curious about something you guys have learned was easier or simpler than you initially thought it was. You can send us an email or record a voice memo and email it to us at podcast at All right, let's get back to the interview with Caitlin Schiller and Rebecca Traster.
1: You know, I'd like to go back just for a second into something you said about how life is really, or society is set up for people who are organized into pairs But women have other pairings that are not with, you know, hetero life partners. Um, They pair with with friends, as you were talking about, and they also pair with their cities in a way, which is a part of your book that I really loved. Could you talk a little bit about the symbiosis of of single women in their cities?
2: Uh, Yes. Well, lots of women talked about loving their cities. Cities have always been a place where unmarried women go, um, even if. The practice is still that they get married in their early adulthood. The opportunity to earn wages, to have any kind of modicum of independence, women have always been drawn to cities where there is economic opportunity. And the other thing that cities have provided is a kind of an infrastructure that makes life without a partner easier cities have things like transportation. There are streets where you can gather. There are places to go to meet. There are bars. There are restaurants. There are places to to get your laundry done. Now, again, this is economically dependent, right? So the other thing that cities draw is a population of low-wage workers, very low-wage workers, who often doing the work. And this is one of the sort of perilous economic questions of singlehood, because if there was a phalanx of wives who were doing the unpaid labor of say laundry, cooking and cleaning for husbands in exchange for, you know, sort of dependence on those husband's salaries, what you have in cities, which draw a range of of workers is lots of women going to cities and having sort of the cities and the people in the cities do the work of wives for them, but often for extremely low wages, but cities have provided that kind of economy and that kind of possibility for women. You know, it was in cities that they built boarding houses in the early 20th century where women could go as the sort of labor force changed and they began to, to find work as shop girls and then stenographers and typists, um, and a range of new professional opportunities began to open up to them. And so there's long been this tremendous relationship between single women and cities.
1: Absolutely. I I was thinking about being single to me seems like it's a mindset. It's not just a, a marital status. And you do write in the book a bit how you had to sort of change your idea about how you could spend your time. All of a sudden, you notice that you have to completely remake how you spend your time and prioritize. And it's the first time you really want to.
2: Right. I know, I'm not sure I would say it's a mindset because I think people feel a million different ways about being single. Lots of the women that I talked to in the book, enjoy many of the same things that we're talking about, but also feel lonely. Um, I felt lonely, you know, Um, and you don't want to deny that. But at the same time, the fantasy that the other person waiting for you at home, like there's, we have these ideas that we don't, like to examine too closely about what marriage and what partnership provides. And of course, we know from lived experience that not all partnerships actually do provide that satisfying person at the end of the night. Like you can be married and be lonelier than any single person, you know?
1: Just like you can have siblings and, and hate each other. It doesn't mean that you're going to have built-in friends.
2: Right. And you can have a partner who doesn't have another income or who is a you know a terrible emotional Um, or economic or logistical drain and who exhausts you even more than the exhausting life of being single. So you want to address all these complexities. But yes, speaking personally, the single life I had, which was just my life, right? It changed in ways when I was partnered that were uncomfortable because uh, it made me understand the degree to which I had been liberated in some ways. I didn't have to answer to anybody. Nobody had to know where I was. And there was loneliness in that too, right? But my time was really entirely my own. I had obligations to my parents. And of course, I had obligations to my friends, which were, you know, were wonderful. I made choices in, not in a vacuum, because it was with regard to, I was being responsible for myself and for my friends. But like, I was the decision maker, and I could go where I wanted to go within limits. Um, When I fell in love, which was wonderful and is wonderful, it was really sort of understanding that I couldn't just flit around to the same. Of course I could, but the reality that I wanted to be with another person as much as humanly possible really threw me off. And it did mean a reduction in intimacy with other, with my friends. My friends had been my partners and not half-assed you know like knockoff partners my friends were the people who with whom i shared my greatest intimacies and and fears and frustrations and anger and happiness and all of it but i'm also acutely aware just because i'm human that people don't live forever people don't love forever and i have heard so many stories reporting this book of like you know your friends wind up prime in some ways for many human beings your friends You know, you begin and end with your intimates being your friends, Um, especially for women who tend to be longer lived than men and all that, you know, like these things are really complicated. Right. And so it's not as simple as like one person standing in for another. There are plenty of people I talked to in this book for whom like the traditional romantic partner, if that person came along, was in a sense like a placeholder for going back to their friends. (laughs) But I know that from the friend perspective, having both been on the other side of it and then been the one who turned toward a more traditional relationship, that it can also feel like the friends wind up as like practice runs or placeholders for like some real romantic partnership. And, mm. and it feels that way. There's no denying that that's the model in some ways. But I also know that that's not the whole story either. So, you know, mm-hmm. these, the, it's really complicated.
1: Yeah, it seems like there needs to be some sort of greater social education about the importance of friendship. Um, I think one of the best courses I ever took when I was an undergrad was called The Friendship Tradition. Um, And it was about the male friendship tradition, though. There was almost nothing about female friendships in there. Um, There was talk about basically wife swapping in (laughs) in ancient literature. And we read this great story um, called Titus and Josippus, but there was nothing about female
2: friendship. I I have a whole chapter in the book about female friendship. And uh, people take it Really unseriously, there are some feminist scholars. Carol Smith Rosenberg has written beautifully about female friendship. And of course, in earlier periods where men and women were really raised in different spheres, and marriage was, in many cases, not to say that there weren't loving or romantic marriages, but in far many more cases when marriage was compulsory, it was also an economic bargain, it was a social bargain, and it wasn't necessarily the joining of two people who felt emotional intimacy women and their girlfriends remained each other's intimates. In a weird way, when marriage was more compulsory and therefore usually of a lesser quality, the people who were still closest to women weren't necessarily their husbands. So in a funny way, other eras in which early hetero marriage was more common, it fostered female friendship and lifelong commitments between female friends in other ways.
1: What what would you tell single women, I'd say between, I don't know, 20 and 30, would you give them any kind of advice about being a single lady now?
2: I'm very, very bad at advice. Uh, (laughs) That's fair. The one thing I would say is that whatever it is they yearn for in life shouldn't be determined by whether or not they're partnered and that their lives are no less real or full or adult. Or complicated, or full of feeling, or commitment, or responsibility than lives of their peers who might, by some quirk of logistics or timing or whatever, be married. And they're no less real adults. I mean, that's the thing that is so crucial is like, whatever the continued social cues, some of them coming from your parents, some of them coming from your own head, your Facebook friends, or whatever. That tell you that you're somehow not a complete adult if you're not married if you don't have a ring or whatever the thing is. The only thing I would tell single women right now is that that is horseshit.
1: That is an awesome answer to end on. But before we do that, could I just ask you for some some book recommendations? Like, what are you reading lately? What would you?
2: I would say read Audrey Lord's Sister Outsider. I would say um, oh, there's a wonderful book that's about to be published. By Brittany Cooper, who I, who I cite in the book and it's called Eloquent Rage and it's going to be out in February of 2018. That's an amazing Um, title. It's, it's so good. It's such a brilliant book. Um, I'd also go back honestly and read that something I've just been doing recently about the suffrage movement, um a collection called One Woman, One Vote that's edited by Marjorie Sproul. Um, and I'd never really read at real length about the suffrage movement. And there are a lot of unmarried women in the suffrage movement. And, you know, for reasons I write about briefly in my book, but that's pretty fascinating. And then there is a novel that actually deals with some of the, you know, not the really profound socioeconomic differences, um, around marriage, but there's a great novel by a man actually named Ruman Alam called rich and pretty. That's about two single women in New York city. Um, and I thought it's a really smart novel about money, privilege and marriage and independence. Um, so I guess those are my book recommendations.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk.
2: Uh, You're welcome. It was a real pleasure. And um, I look forward to hearing the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much.
0: Welcome to the bookend, where we end with books. So why did you want to talk to Rebecca Traster?
1: Oh, man. It's hard to it's hard to give one answer. I wanted to talk to her from the first moment I started reading All the Single Ladies, because finally, there was someone out there exploring in full measure a section of the population that in the past has been mostly stereotyped and caricatured, but not necessarily dignified by intellectual exploration.
0: It seems this book seems to touch a lot of people pretty personally.
1: Yeah, it does. Um, I identified and still in some ways do, despite being partnered, For a long time as a single woman, I grew up making my own decisions for myself for the past decade, often in a foreign country. And I recognize that I am tremendously privileged in being able to do so. But there are also certain challenges that don't really get talked about. So I loved seeing the economic and social roots of those challenges explored and and rigorously researched.
0: Yeah, awesome. And I mean, I'm not a single lady, but I also really like listening to this one. I learned a lot of things here, too. So what really stuck out to you in this interview?
1: So in this interview and in the book, really, the interdependence of the single woman in her city and how the move of the single economically affluent or self-sustaining woman gave rise to a new labor force in the cities, how in a way there will always be a wife, someone doing the drudge work, you know?
0: Yeah. There will always be a wife. That'd be an interesting title for this <laughs> for this one. Oh my God. Um, so Rebecca Tracer gave a ton of recommendations at the end of the interview, and a lot of them are pretty hardcore history books, I think. Uh, Yeah, we'll list them for sure in the show notes, but I'd be curious to see what book list you make uh, of books that might be a little easier to find and ones that we have on Blinkist.
2: Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, So I chose I chose three that are related to the topics that we talked about. And the first one is The Fight to Vote by Michael Waldman. So this one is about the fight for democracy in the US from the Revolutionary War up until the present day.
0: Yeah, it's a good it's uh, a good read about sort of the nuances about how we think of the democratic system and highlights the people and the organizations that actually challenged the authorities.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. And those challenges actually secured the right to vote for the poor, for women and for ethnic
0: minorities. Cool. Cool choice. What next book?
1: Okay, so in her book, Rebecca talks about marriage, but the main focus is on single women. The second book that I've pulled out here is called Marriage, a History by Stephanie Kuntz. This book goes into the full history of marriage from the Stone Age up until the present day.
0: Yeah, it's easy to forget that the love marriage is actually a super modern invention. Mm-hmm. I mean, marriage used to be all about, like, peacekeeping and land acquisition because, you know, like, uh, William III would get his send his son off to marry whoever, Teresa IV, just so that, like, the Germany and England would fight
1: yeah and get huge tracts of land right so yeah um forever love was just considered a side effect of marriage not the point
0: yeah strange this is such a rich topic to dive into maybe because i don't know relationships are something that so many people can relate to somehow i don't know
1: well relationships and relationship constructions and i think now we're living in a time where that's only just beginning to be questioned like why do you only have one partner for forever where did that come from what does it mean and how can it look different in order to best serve all the people in the relationship
0: yeah Hmm. yeah All right, so what's the last book?
1: Okay, so Tracer didn't plug her own book, so I'm going to because, as I said, I love this book. So All the Single Ladies, in case you're not sure yet, which (laughs) I don't know what you were doing for the past half hour if you're not, but that's cool, um, is a history of single women in America and how they've shaped politics and culture and what their unique challenges are. Read this, not just if you're a single woman. It's also just really beautiful writing. She's a very, very talented scribe.
0: Yeah, read this if you're anybody.
1: Hooray, if you're anybody. So... Seriously, I found it a joy to read. So, yeah.
0: Okay. Then we can just about wrap this up. This is the end of season 2 of Simplify, Caitlin.
1: Oh, but what about the bonus episode? Didn't you oh, promise me a bonus episode? True.
0: I guess we can reveal that we're working on something. It would probably drop into people's feeds as early as next week.
1: Yes. So, don't unsubscribe. In yes. fact, do the opposite. Subscribe. Do, do Subscribe to someone else. <laughs> yeah.
0: Do not unsubscribe. <laughs> thanks to all the people who helped make this podcast it was produced by me benjamin Solar, caitlin Schiller, Nat Doshkina, ben jackson and Odie constantino who once opened a co-working space where there was no wi-fi no tables and no talking it closed down after four months
1: <laughs> dang it's just a a four months
0: yeah
1: <laughs> uh well it's good that odi is such an excellent audio engineer um anyway so if you enjoyed this episode or feel that you learned something cool could you please do us a favor and send it to one person that you like Especially if this person would particularly get something out of this episode. Like I said last time, podcasts are conversations. Use it to start a conversation with someone you like.
0: Yeah. Or someone you hate. But, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Big big shout out already to the people who've subscribed already. Um, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, wherever you listen. We really appreciate it. And if you like this season and you're excited about the bonus episode, leave us a rating or give us some stars. Um, That'd be really nice. We appreciate it.
1: Awesome. So we're also on Twitter. I'm at Caitlin Schiller. And you are?
0: At Bisto. B-S-T-O.
1: Cool. Also, Simplify is made by the same people who make Blinkist. And Ben and I are two of those people. Uh, So Blinkist, if you don't already know, is a learning app. It takes the insights of the world's great nonfiction books and puts them into a 15-minute format that you can listen to or read on your phone.
0: Yeah, and if you want to try it out, you can use a voucher code, which we made just for this episode. You can get 14 days free if you go to Blinkist.com slash friends and type in the voucher code for this episode, which is single ladies, all one word, single ladies, like the title of rebecca tracer's book i couldn't get too creative this time That's
1: sorry totally fine uh yeah so last thing thank you so much for sending in your voice memos with the answer to the question what have you learned was much simpler than you initially thought it was if you haven't done it yet do it record a voice memo <laughs> and email it to me and ben at podcast at linkus.com even if this is the end of season two there will be a season three for spoilers sure. yeah for sure <laughs> so, we'd love
0: to hear some good some some more good voices out there
1: good vo- if you have a particularly good voice <laughs> that too. so yeah send us that too
0: all right cool so we'll be back at some point maybe next week maybe in 10 days or so uh with a bonus episode in the meantime be good this is ben
1: oh and me this is caitlin hey caitlin <laughs> checking
0: out see you guys bye bye